Hello and welcome back to Broken Oars Podcast. And as you can tell by the e canny lad lake accent, this is your northern one speaking. Now, recently we ran a poll saying if Broken Oars Podcast was to branch out from its usual high level content delivery of the best guests, the best conversations, the best quips, the best puns, and the best northern accents, would you still listen to it? And you all said yes. So we ran another poll saying, if we did something different, what would you like it to be? Would you like it to be something literary? Something musical? Something something? And you all plumped for something something, which I'm not entirely sure what that means. That could be practically anything. I know that Lewin is surging through the great training programs of our time approach, talking about everything from concept two with Jürgen to the Wolverine plan to the Pete plan to what looks like, frankly, a fearsome lightweight plan. Um, so that is definitely rowing related, but I thought I would do something, something. So what I'm going to do today uh, for your summer holidays, for your journey to your summer holidays, for lying catatonic on a beach lounger during your summer holidays, for late nights at your summer holidays, for early mornings on your summer holidays, for your summer holidays, I am going to read a self-penned Sherlock Holmes mystery adventure. Now, I will warn you from the outset that there is no rowing in this particular self-penned Sherlock Holmes mystery adventure. It is me just messing around with the form and messing around with the language and frankly just messing around, which is what you've come to know, love and expect from the northern one of your illustrious terrible twins. Terrible twins? Deadly duo? Something like that. But if this goes well, I will write another one and I will include something rowing related in it. Something like the mystery of the missing bowman. The mystery being, why does he always go missing when we race? However, I digress. So moving on and moving back. This is a Sherlock Holmes adventure for your summer holidays. something something had seen my great friend Sherlock Holmes here of a patriotic and hair trigger finger and questionable delight in the art of self-poisoning and one of the finest minds and attendant brains to be found in God's own empire exercising his considerable intellect in a number of cases involving missives letters and postcards as an Englishman and I hope and pray a gentleman the hushed case of the royal sealing wax I am not at liberty to reveal to the public until one hundred years have passed, at which time my records shall be released and sold to the highest bidder, concerning as it does one of the peccadilloes that habitually befalls our stout monarchy. Likewise, the speedy conclusion of the Dover mail coach adventure presents an interesting account of deception, train spotting, and stamp collecting that is likely to be of any but little interest to the reading public with skeletons in their closet. Yet, all through that sweltering summer that descended upon London, rendering its throng of life grimmer and murkier and sweatier than it had been since the dark old days, Holmes was often called upon to unravel what others had thought tied, and shed light when all was darkness. And so it was that I found myself reclining in my favourite armchair in the comfortable old environs of the chambers of Baker Street. In truth, I was supposed to be pounding the pavement in my guise as ministering angel, bringing relief to the sick and needy of my practice. 
But today of all days, the lure of the weather had compelled me to throw off the shackles and take my ease as I found it, leaving the invalids of London to get on with being ill and repulsive in their own time. I had also dropped in upon my companion in Baker Street to seek the advice of Holmes upon a small matter concerning my wife. I was wondering if he could recommend a little-known Asiatic poison, preferably untraceable, with which I could use to murder her before she drove me completely insane with her merry prattle and ceaseless idiocy. My plan was to dump her body in a lime pit and maintain to all who knew me that my wife had retired to Coley Hatch for a course of treatment. The papers concerning such a matter being easily available to a medical practitioner such as myself. It was either that or say that I had been forced to lock her away in the attic to preserve sanity and matrimony, these being the Victorian days when people barely raised an eyebrow if you happened to have a doolally relative locked away somewhere. Holmes, I was sure, would know what to do, yet before I had time to broach my topic of conversation, he had swept me with rare effusiveness to his seat beside the fire which was smouldering in defiance of the sultry and sweaty heat that lingered upon the city. He produced his prize Stradivarius from its abode, and after regaling me yet again with a tale of how he had come by it in a pawnbroker's shop for a song, which I personally didn't think that the damn thing was capable of producing, strung with gut as it was, it sounded as though it was still attached to the unfortunate feline while he soared away upon it, a tale which he knew irked me, but he proceeded nevertheless to try and imbue some spirit of culture into my admittedly philistine breast. Admittedly philistine, for I maintain that it befits a man of science to be hard-headed and soulless, with few finer feelings to get in the way of narrow-minded cogitation. Come, Watson, he cried in rare humour, his fiddle tucked under his chin, his bow flourished like a baton towards me. Let us see if within your English breast beats the heart of an aesthete. However, be warned, for if it is proved, they shall stone you as surely as they did our queer Dubliner. I could swear now and until my dying day that had I been within reach, Holmes would have prodded me about the waistcoat button with his bow, and I began to fear for my friend's sanity. For never before I had seen him in so jovial a mood, even in the wildest flights of his recreational abuse. Apart from his habit of self-intoxication, his lifestyle was simple to the point of austerity, living as he did for the fulfilment of professional obligation. I assumed that the recent spate of cases, having dried up, had left a void within him that had pushed him towards his chemical experiments yet again, with clearly disastrous results. Yet before I could rise and reason with him, his face sang back to its usual hawk-like repose, and he fell deep into the deep trance of concentration that signalled that something was afoot. I can see him now silhouetted against the window that looked out onto Baker Street, swathed in the thick, dirty light of London as it poured into our dear old chambers, surrounded by all of his paraphernalia, garbed in his dressing gown, cutting a looming and fantastical figure. Rearing back and raising his bow, his sudden pose allowed the light to file upon and shadow his face. His eyes closed, his mouth firm, he stood balanced upon the cusp of the moment before allowing himself to be carried along with it as it broke and in falling, striking the first notes of the mellifluous cascades that followed. If London could have known, if a bird had been flying above the expanse of the metropolis, spinning and spiralling in the sky, hung beneath the blue and yet above the grey rooftops, the varied expanse of the capital, if it had been able to see the whole world in all of our achievements, and in catching the thin, faint stream of sign spun down and round past our dear landmarks above the unheeming teeming of London, following that tenuous thread that fascinated it to its source, 
it would have found the genius alone in bachelor's rooms in London, sawing away. That indeed would have been a dizzy flight, but no one saw but I, soaring away away over the masts at Greenwich and the churches, St Paul's, all the rest, flying away to the other side of London, where the fields still begin to spread out and the brown of the woods is still more frequent and the song more natural. Yet no one heard or saw but I. I sat in rapt fascination as much watching the subtle movement of my friend's face as the ebb and flow rose and fell within him as hearing the sounds. The end came and with it silence. The chambers of Baker Street were momentarily a brooding edifice to an age which I felt was slipping past me. The smouldering fire, not needed on such a London July day, scarcely aided the dimming light to alleviate my suspicion that we two were somehow locked in a museum that will be viewed in the future. I looked about, and the familiar surroundings for once did not seem to comfort me, the lilting wail of the exquisite melody hanging about, like a wreath of transparent smoke, draping all in remote, abstruse desolation. Holmes returned from wherever he had been, coming to as a man from sedation or anaesthesia. Well, Watson, he said reverently, his eyes half shut in dreamy fashion, does that stir anything in you beyond your want of beef and Yorkshire pud? An Englishman at heart, and loath to reveal emotion even to those closest to me, or indeed to indulge in the slavish approbation of art that seems so fashionable nowadays, I assumed a bluff and hearty response. I can't say that it did, Holmes. I'm, I'm not one to say what's what and what isn't, for we all have different tastes and indulgences. After all, isn't that what, uh, that what makes the world go round, makes it interesting and diverse in the eyes of man and God? I'd, I'd like a good tune as much as the next man, but asking me to unravel a squall of notes on the fiddle is like asking a sparrow to comment upon the works of God. Eruditely put, Watson, Holmes replied with a small smile playing about his lips. The globe is indeed fascinating and diverse, evoking in the breast of this island race the desire to go and conquer as much of it as possible in order to bring the delightful constancy of England to wherever we deign to travel. And as for new tunes that you could whistle or bellow in your bluff music hall baritone, well, stamp along with this. He took up his violin and tucked it under his chin, breaking off upon the moment of striking to remark with a sardonic cast. I believe it's called the Mikado. And thus he launched into a wild and compelling reel that made me completely forget about the planned coshing of my wife as it stirred the blood in strange, feverish ways. We were broken off as I stamped my feet merrily and Holmes soared away with a sardonic look on his face and exaggerated swaying and bowing by the sound of boots slapping upon the sixteen steps of Baker Street and a smart rapping upon the door. Holmes broke off and glanced at me in some amusement at my dishevelled and flushed appearance before speaking thusly. The person who stands at the door is a boy of medium height, weight and vitality who has something to deliver that cannot be entrusted to our landlady, which I would judge therefore to be a registered post or letter of some description. I said nothing, retrieving my breath from whence it had gone and waiting for my friend to reveal the reasoning behind his deductions. That he would have his reasons based upon the soundest logic, I had no doubt, and I had little doubt that they would be as the simplest child's play once revealed. I had no wish to chance my arm to his intellect again. Holmes saw the expression upon my face and laughed, his Stradivarius still tucked under his chin. Firstly, that it is a boy of medium height, weight and vitality, in somewhat of a hurry, is explained thusly. 
There are, as you know, 17 steps leading to the door of my chambers from the hall, yet we only heard eight thuds, which indicates that the stairs were taken in pairs, with one step of three in the equation somewhere. I would indicate the set 9, 10 and 11, which are, as you will have observed, somewhat more uneven than the others, and set closer together as a result. That the boy in question is of medium build and vitality, we can deduce by virtue of the fact that the thuds we heard, though distinct, were too light to be associated with a full-grown man charging up the stairs. His vitality, by virtue of the fact that if he had wished to exert himself, he could have taken the steps in threes with very little trouble. And that he is a boy, because I have yet to meet a lady who can bounce upstairs while in full skirts and bustle the only other body weight that would have explained the tomber of the stepping. Holmes stopped and looked at me keenly before breaking off the smile at my obviously uncertain expression to play a neat classical cadenza by way of mocking salute to himself. Uh, and, the, and the rest, Holmes, I inquired after a short moment, that he has some registered missive too precious to be entrusted to our landlady. Again, easily explained Watson if my reasoning is to be found correct. The next post is not due until two of the clock, the most recent being at your side, handing to me by my landlady this very mid-morning, no doubt after she'd previously steamed them open in the hope of finding some salacious gossip with which to entertain her existence if the water stains on the gum are anything to go by. For all her faults, she would not let a common street urchin up to my chambers without accompanying them and broaching their presence so the boy is likely to be one of the runners used by the mail service with something for one of us. I suspect myself, no one else knowing of your presence here today. He closed his eyes and drew out a melancholy theme upon his fiddle, smiling again at something that only he knew. Astounding, Holmes, I said in admiration, and would no doubt have said more, had not the door rattled again with a rat-a-tat-tat. Very well, said Holmes, let us see if I am right, Watson. Enter, he cried at the door. The door opened, and there before stood the very person that Holmes had described, bearing in his hand a letter. Uh, Sherlock Holmes, he said, uncertainly. My friend nodded assent. The boy bobbed his head and proffered a slim white envelope towards him. I'm instructed to give you this, if, I, if you'd be so good as to sign for it. With that, the postman rummaged in his royal blue jacket and produced a dog-eared receipt, which Holmes duly signed with his right hand, his left being engaged in maintaining the position of his fiddle under his chin which even as I watched, he dropped to his side. The postboy handed over the slip of paper to Holmes, which he carelessly discarded, and then received the envelope. With that, the postboy was gone, clattering back down the steps, the gloom swallowing him up. Holmes, his Stradivarius held in one long, elegant hand, gave the envelope a cursory look on both sides and thought for a moment. Carelessly flinging the fiddle to the settle, he said, This letter comes from a woman half Irish, half Indian or Asian, currently residing in Scotland, in the closest thing to the middle of nowhere that we have in these sceptred isles, Glengow Lawrence Kirk, which, if memory serves, is about 30 miles southwards, southwestwards maybe, of Aberdeen, a place which smells of fish, thick accents, and thicker people. I was, as usual, amazed. I watched as Holmes paced to and fro before me, stopping once again to throw a log upon the slumbering fire for reasons of his own. For myself, it was uncomfortably close, the day being warm and the room being stuffy, and then again to peer at the letter that he had in his hands. I was determined to say nothing, knowing that Holmes would yet again reveal his method of reasoning to me in due course. But as he said nothing, my suspense grew until I said, Holmes, I have no doubt you are right, but how do you know? He looked at me with the predatory keenness which always overtook him when he was active before he addressed me. 
You know my methods which make up the parlour tricks that I use to indicate to you that you are a man of very little brain, Watson. Observation and collation of the facts, only the facts and always the facts are the bones upon which the flesh of conjecture grows. I received the envelope, I looked at it keenly, if only momentarily, that it comes from Glengough, Lawrence Kirk, I deduced from the postmark which bears the code of that area. The word Aberdeenshire rather gave away the city to which it can be described. But Holmes, I cried in amazement, how on earth do you divine the origins of the letter, that it comes from a lady of Irish-Indian extraction and the smell of fish and thick accents? Oh, dear God, Watson, he exploded in a state of near disbelief for some reason that I could not quite make out. You really are an absolute and incontemptible imbecile that she is a woman because she is called Siobhan, which also indicates her Irish origin. Her second name is Abbe Singh, so I can presume that she is Indian or possibly Sri Lankan in some way. I know her name because it happens to be plainly visible along with her address upon the reverse side of the envelope, meaning that I told you a lie about the postmark for the very simple reason that I wanted to find out what an absolute ass you are and the limits of your credulity. He paused, the look of furious energy so plain upon his face, his mouth tight and pursed and then wheeled around about to gaze at the window momentarily at the houses opposite. He turned back to me and said, apparently there those limits are boundless. The smell of fish and thick accents I deduce because firstly Aberdeen is a fishing village and no matter how you scrub the scent of stale cod and halibut always lingers, and secondly the accent because they don't speak English in the wild parts but Scots, which is generally held to be unintelligible to the civilised world, despite what Robbie Burns might say upon the subject. He stopped and looked into the fire as though considering something. I quite like the place, myself, he said eventually. Then with a look of infinite sadness he looked back to me, and the sorrow was largely visible in his face. His eyes momently translucent as he fixed them upon me. I had not stirred from the chair which I had been ushered to upon my arrival. What has happened, Watson? He inquired rhetorically, I presume, for I hadn't a clue what he was talking about. Once when we met you were what you had been brought up to be. Good old-fashioned common middle-class cannon fodder, stolid and patient, you thought both slowly and not particularly incisively, but like the bulldog your breed is tagged to, you did not readily let go. They tried their best to get you killed in the defence of the Empire, but you survive, as your old Jezreel wound will testify. You have indeed been a solid and faithful companion. Indeed, I assumed that your assumed career as my biographer had duped your never very bright senses to the point where you believe in my fictional omniscience and in your own slow, stolid stupidity. If you were a dog, I would say that you had outlasted your time, and being of no further use and having no joy in life, I would have regrettably put you down. But as we both need the money, you shall have to go on sensationalizing my career. All in all, if this is the charge that married life has wrought upon you, my dearest friend, I should seriously consider killing your wife. He looked at me reproachfully, then smiled, and I felt understanding pass between us. For myself, I was gaping open-mouthed in the familiar Lazar house of 221B Baker Street. But Holmes, I said, how on earth did you know?